Welcome to From the Front Porch, a conversational podcast about books, small business, and life in the South. Welcome to this bonus episode of From the Front Porch. I'm Annie Jones, and today I'm joined by Stephen Epstein. Stephen is an attorney and the author of Evil at Lake Seminole, a true crime book that immediately caught my attention thanks to its connections to my hometown of Tallahassee, Florida. Stephen and I talked about the true crime genre, what drew him to the Mike Williams case, and how to write about the victims of devastating acts with grace and dignity. Without further ado, my conversation with Stephen Epstein. Steve, thanks so much for joining me today. Pleasure to be with you. I am so excited to talk with you about your book because I am a Tallahassee native. And in fact, Thomasville is just 30, 45 minutes up the road, as you may have discovered when <laughs> when doing research for your book. But I grew up in Tallahassee, very familiar, some might say, obsessed with the Mike Williams case. I grew up reading Jennifer's columns in the Tallahassee Democrat, mm-hmm. and I went to North Florida Christian School. So Mike is older than I am, was older than I am, but this is just one of those kind of hometown stories that I've heard much of my life. Sure. So I'm excited to chat with you. My first real question, though, I see that you are an attorney. My husband is an attorney. I worked for a couple years for the Florida Bar in Tallahassee, and I'm just wondering what led you to kind of pursue this writing career on the side? What drew you to begin writing books kind of as your side gig in addition to being an attorney? I wish I could put my finger on that. I really can't. I literally one day woke up. I was familiar with my the story in my first book, which is called Murder on Burge Leaf Drive from having, like you, read a lot of newspaper stories about it over several years. And one day I decided I was going to write the book about that story. I had no background in that kind of writing whatsoever, but I knew so many of the players involved and it was such a compelling story. I decided somebody has to write this book and if nobody else will, it may as well be me. And that's how my writing career got started. I'm fascinated by that because I was a journalism major in undergrad. So I definitely have that sense of, I don't know, you know, if if somebody else isn't going to do this, I will. And again, just kind of this fascination and kind of research obsession. I love reading news articles. I love kind of doing a deep dive on a story. But I will be honest, I don't know that I have the self-control or the like, the stick-to-itiveness to pursue the story and actually write it. So I'm really impressed that, you know, on top of your legal career, you also took, it's time-consuming, isn't it, to write a story like this? Oh, it's tremendously time-consuming. If you think about all of the material that you have to digest in order to convey a narrative and understand the characters and flesh out the characters and be accurate, because this is true crime, you Mm -hmm. can't just make it up as you go along. You have to be exceedingly accurate. And so I... You know, I read all of the transcripts. I watch all of the video footage of the trials. Uh, I devour, like you said, every piece of newspaper information, every uh, story on the web that I can about these stories to make sure I know the story inside and out. And then I have to interview for Evil Lake Seminole. I did somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 interviews, the people involved to make sure I get my facts straight, to make sure I flesh out the characters in a way that they would say is accurate. 
So at the end of the day, nobody who reads the book who's familiar with these people and familiar with the story would say, no, you got that wrong. That, that right. would, to me, would be the worst nightmare, having written a book like that, like this, for somebody mm-hmm. to come up and say, no, you, you didn't get it right. Do you think your legal career, to some extent, especially as I'm hearing you talk about the heavy research, do you think it kind of did prepare you for work like this? Absolutely. There's a ton of research involved in being a trial lawyer, which I am, in getting a case ready for trial. You know, getting a case ready for trial or for a major hearing involves tons of research, digesting and synthesizing tons of information, and being able to tell a story. So true crime writing has a lot in common with all of that. And yes, I think my career as a lawyer prepared me very well for writing these books. And writing is actually a big part of being a lawyer as well. So I think I was prepared based upon all of the work that I've done now over 30 years to embark on a career, at least a sideline career like this. Yes. This is your second true crime book, right? Yes. So I'm curious, we'll get to Evil at Lake Seminole and kind of why I was drawn to the story and more details about it in a moment. But I did want to reflect a little bit on your first book, which I am less familiar with. So I wanted to give you a chance to kind of tell listeners maybe what that one might be about. So it's called Murder on Birchleaf Drive. It's the case that kind of got your attention and led you into writing these true crime books. So tell us a little bit about the case itself and and then kind of your writing process for that particular book. Sure. So the, the story in that book begins with a woman found on the floor of her master bedroom having been bludgeoned to death. And that woman was Michelle Young, who grew up in Long Island, New York, which was a common connection I had to that story because I too grew up in Long Island, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a story about whether her husband, uh, whose name was Jason Young, was the one who did that to her. And her husband was away on a business trip. And they did, they thought he was the key suspect right from the start. But amazingly enough, there wasn't a thing that they could pin on him in terms of blood, DNA, hair, you name it. It, it, The forensic evidence wasn't there to connect him to the crime scene other than, you know, the things that you would think of. His fingerprints were found, you know, on the walls of the home. Well, it was his home. Uh, But he was supposedly away on a business trip. And so it was a very difficult case for prosecutors to make the case because they didn't have anything connecting him to the crime scene that specifically put him there the morning that his wife was killed. And yet there were so many red flags about his life. He was having affairs. He had engaged in just horrible arguments with his wife that his friends had seen. His life was spiraling out of control in several different ways. Uh, And so the story is about how the investigators and ultimately the prosecutors put together the case. And two thirds of the book actually occurs in the courtroom because Jason Young was tried not just once, but twice because his first trial ended in a hung jury. It's a fascinating case about a relationship gone bad and a culture clash because Jason Young was from the mountains of North Carolina. He grew up in a school teacher's home. His mom was very much part of the story. She stood by him all the way. Uh, and Michelle grew up in Long Island where her mother was a school teacher and her mother remained in New York and her family was from New York. And so there was a culture clash from the beginning. And what was going on in the courtroom continued to be that culture clash of the two families, one from the north, one from the North Carolina mountains, and how mm-hmm. they saw the same exact facts, obviously, very, very differently. How interesting. And you you said you grew up in Long Island and you live in North Carolina now, correct? That's true. I do. I went to school at the University of North Carolina. 
Okay, so that's interesting then that you kind of, I guess, maybe could see both sides from having maybe lived lived in both places. Um, not so not sure only that, that, I married a Southerner, just like Michelle Young. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I was a professional. My wife was a professional. Uh, we had so much in common. My relationship went bad. The point at which that story diverged from mine was I got a divorce. Uh, mm. Jason Young, if you believe the evidence against him, as I do, didn't get a divorce. Uh, he murdered his wife. Oh, fascinating. So that case, at the time you kind of came across it and became fascinated by it, was that case happening in real time or had it ended at the point in which you began writing your book? I think I was aware of that case within days of the murder, which is all the way back in November of 2006, because I had a colleague in my law firm who lived a couple of houses down from where this happened in Raleigh. And he was so distraught. I remember it very vividly about something as horrible as this happening just a couple of doors down from where he lived. And she actually worked in the building next door at Progress Energy, a major energy company. Uh, she worked right next door. So there were so many things that connected me to that story. And I knew all of the legal players, the judge that tried the case twice. So yeah, I had a lot of points of connection to that story. And it just made it a lot easier to write about what had happened, who the characters were. The lawyers were significant characters. I knew them very well. It was easy to write about them. So it, it just made sense. And I wrote it and fortunately got it published. I am so intrigued then because it sounds like obviously you had a lot of personal connections to that particular case. You had the resources and kind of the wherewithal to put it all together to get this book published. Then I'm so curious what attracts you or interests you in this case that takes place in Tallahassee, Florida, where I'm from, that you perhaps have fewer connections to. And I know in the beginning of the book, you talk about you reference kind of listening to a podcast. And I'm curious, did you have a desire to write a second book after publishing Murder on Birchleaf Drive? Kind of what happened to lead you to the Mike Williams case? Well, what led me to the Mike Williams case was doing book signings and book events where people kept asking me, what's your next book? And I looked at them <laughs> bewildered. Like, why do I need to write another book? I don't understand. I've written a book. Isn't that good enough? <laughs> I did it. Yeah, I did it. Checked it and off the list. Enough people encouraged me and, you know, obviously thought I had done a good job with the first book that eventually I started saying, well, if that many people say I should do another book, maybe they're on to something. So I did start listening to podcasts with the thought being, you know, maybe I will write another book. I wasn't 100% committed to the idea of doing it. And I probably listened to about five or six different podcasts of murder cases on different true crime podcasts, and nothing even remotely attracted me. The murders were too gruesome. There wasn't a compelling narrative. And I probably, if I didn't, within another few weeks, hear something that I liked, I probably would have just moved on and said, I wrote a book. That's good enough. Right. So it's funny that as I write about in the beginning of Evil Lake Seminole, uh, as I was trying to figure out what I was going to listen to on the way home from my son's football game, because I was going to be waiting for him to get changed and all, I actually was trying to put on a podcast that I had heard for the Jason Young case after I'd written the book called Court Junkie. But I made a mistake and inadvertently found something on Crime Junkie. Sounds very similar, but they're very <laughs> different podcasts. And I just randomly selected something and I started listening to this story about this guy who went duck hunting and disappeared. And I was mesmerized from the very beginning because I had never heard anything as crazy as what happened in this case. And I it, knew it that night I was going to write this book. 
that night I knew I was going to write this book. The Mike Williams case, as I said, so I grew up in Tallahassee. I am younger than Mike Williams and then his peers. But Tallahassee is, a, as you probably now know after visiting, is a pretty sleepy capital city. And so I think the story is one that almost took on a folklore type aspect. And I want to talk a little bit later about true crime and sometimes how true crime doesn't always do the victims of the crimes a service. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, basically, this kind of has become Tallahassee lore. And this columnist at the Tallahassee Democrat is really how I became familiar with the case. Um, As I mentioned, very interested in journalism, went to college, became a journalism major. So in high school, read the Tallahassee Democrat religiously and read her columns. And every year, kind of this plea to solve the Mike Williams case or to investigate this Mike Williams case. So for listeners who maybe did not grow up in Tallahassee and are less familiar, give us a brief rundown of this story of this man who, yeah, went duck hunting one fall morning and then did not come home. So it was December 16th, 2000, and it just happened to be the eve of Mike and Denise's sixth wedding anniversary. Mike met Denise Merrill, in the ninth grade at the North Florida Christian School. She had transferred from Holy Comforter uh, for high school. He didn't know her, their families didn't know each other, and there was an instant connection between the two of them, and she became his girlfriend fairly soon after she entered the ninth grade. And she wound up being his girlfriend all throughout high school, into college. He started at FAMU and then went to Florida State. And They got married shortly after he graduated and she graduated from Florida State. They also had formed a friendship with another couple, a man named Brian Winchester, whose dad was doing very well as an insurance agent in town, and Kathy Aldridge, whose family ran a printing business in town. They coupled up about the same time that Mike and Denise coupled up, and they became a fearsome foursome. While they were in high school, both Denise and Kathy were cheerleaders. Mike was a football player. Brian wasn't athletic in terms of being involved in school sports, but he became a champion water skier. And one thing that Mike and Brian had in common was their love for hunting. They were both extremely avid duck hunters, although they did dove hunting and deep sea fishing and things like that. They absolutely loved duck hunting. Now, the morning of December 16, 2000, Mike supposedly is going duck hunting alone. Shortly after he gets there and get bags his ducks, he's going to race home, and he and Denise are going to head to Apalachicola Bay to the Gibson Inn to be there the eve of their sixth wedding anniversary and be there the next day on their sixth wedding anniversary. They have a child, a 19-month-old daughter named Ansley, and Denise's sister is planning to watch Ansley uh, while they go on this getaway to Apalachicola Bay. Well, at about noon that afternoon, Mike's still not home, and Denise starts making phone calls. I don't know where Mike is. He's supposed to be home. We're supposed to go on this anniversary trip. And eventually she gets her father, Warren Merrill, to head down or head up, I guess I should say, to Lake Seminole, which is where Mike went that morning to go duck hunting, about an hour northwest, uh, just uh, north of the town of Sneeds, which is the southern tip of Lake Seminole, which straddles the Florida-Georgia line for over 100 miles. And they start searching for him, and they can't find anything except his truck and the boat trailer. So they know Mike was there, and they know his boat was there. 
but they can't find him. And that search eventually evolves into a massive missing person hunt for Mike Williams. And they can't find him there. One of the people who was there every single day searching for Mike was his best friend, Brian Winchester. And Brian, by all accounts, was as distraught as anybody that they could not find Mike. And eventually they have a memorial service for him, February 11th, 2001, a little less than two months after he disappeared, because everybody assumes he's dead. The working assumption is he hit a stump. This was an area that had a lot of tree stumps uh, submerged underwater. And the theory was his boat hit a tree stump. He went underwater. He was wearing waders. He couldn't extract his legs from the waders. They filled with water. He drowned. And why wasn't his body found? Well, the other piece of the story was, and this is one of the reasons I was so intrigued when I heard it, <laughs> the lake was infested with alligators. And so mm -hmm. the theory was that his body had been consumed by alligators, and that's why his body never floated to the surface. And that's what people believed at that time. And believed for for years, which is fascinating to me, because if you grew up in this area, I mean, again, and I think that's why the case, sadly, almost took on a folklore quality is because that sounds so bizarre. And if you grew up around here, it's really implausible. Like that doesn't really happen. <laughs> like, like contrary to popular belief, you don't hear a ton of man eating alligator stories in, in uh, North Florida, South Georgia. Like that's just not we see alligators. They are not imaginary creatures to us, but it would be almost unbelievable to especially believe that during November or December, I guess December, that something like that would happen. And I can't believe that for a decade or more, that was really the the belief of law enforcement or certainly certainly the truth being peddled to to the masses was that this is what had happened to Mike. One person who never believes this is his mom. And I was curious in the research of this story and in the research of this case, did you get a chance to talk with Mike Williams' mother? She plays such an, she really plays the role of the advocate in this story. She never stops fighting for people to pay attention to Mike, to find Mike. And her story is really one of the most heartbreaking to me. Yes, I got to know Cheryl Williams extremely well. As I say in the acknowledgments, I will never meet another person like her the rest of my life. She's an extraordinary woman. Her steely grit and determination is just remarkable. And there's no way this crime would have been solved. There's no way that people would have thought it had been a crime had it mm -hmm. not been for her persistence and perseverance. In fact, there's a chapter in the book, chapter six, that I called Persistence, Perseverance, Pursuit. And it's mm -hmm. all about Cheryl Williams refusing to believe the story that's being told. And it all started on Christmas Eve of that year, eight days after Mike went missing. Cheryl came to the lake for the first time, was shown exactly where Mike's boat supposedly entered the water. She stood on the shore and she heard a voice, which she believed was God, telling her that Mike did not drown at Lake Seminole, that his body had not been consumed by alligators, that she needed to go find him and bring him home. And her mission in life from that day, December 24th, 2000, until his killers were ultimately identified and convicted, that was her life's mission. And they were not convicted until 
is it 2019? I'm trying to remember the timeline. I think it all kind of began, the story of Brian and Denise begins to unravel around 2018. And I write about that. Well, yes, but your listeners first have to know that Brian and Denise eventually get married. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I feel like, yes, help me fill in the blanks because I've, I've followed it for so long, but you're right. Listeners don't know that. In December 2005, they have a wedding in the same Centennial Oak subdivision where Mike and Denise had, had been living and were raising their child, Ansley, at the time of his disappearance. They get married in a grassy area uh, by a pond in that subdivision, a beautiful outdoor wedding. And then Brian moves into the home at 5017 Centennial Oaks Drive, Centennial Oaks Circle, as if he was, you know, the dad raising the child along with Denise, taking Mike's place in both Denise and Ansley's life. And it wasn't until their marriage started to unravel that all of a sudden investigators finally had the possibility of figuring out what had happened on December 16, 2000. And their marriage unraveled in 2012. Four mm -hmm. years later, before there's a divorce, but after there are a bunch of legal proceedings about it, Brian waits for Denise in her vehicle at Centennial Oak Circle and surprises her as she's heading to work at Florida State University that morning, sticks a gun in her ribs and tells her to drive. Mm -hmm. And his, his goal that day, supposedly, was to get her to call off the divorce. A, a string of events ensued from that day forward that eventually led to us all learning the story of what really happened to Mike, because both Denise and Brian wound up at the Leon County Sheriff's Office later that day. Denise telling law enforcement about her being kidnapped by Brian, mm -hmm. and then Brian ultimately being arrested and brought in. And although he didn't talk for quite some time, eventually he did. And eventually he led investigators to the very spot not at Lake Seminole, but at Car Lake in Tallahassee, where Mike's body had been buried by that point for 18 years. As you're kind of retelling the story to me aloud, I'm wondering what it was like for you to kind of be listening to a podcast and hearing this case. And I'm wondering at what point, whether it was the alligator or how long this case took or the detail about Cheryl Williams, what was it for you that really did make you think, well, this is it, like, this is my story, because it is such a, such an, such a bizarre, almost one of those true life is stranger than fiction kind of stories. Like you almost can't believe that it's, that it's real. What, what point was it that made you realize this, I've got to do this next? I think you just put your finger on it. When I inscribe books to people that I don't know, I typically have one saying, and that's what I say in this book when I inscribe this book for people that I don't know. It's that this book, confer this story confirms that truth is often not only stranger, but more disturbing than fiction. Mm -hmm. And no one would believe that this is a true story unless they were told, hey, this is a true story. These things yeah. actually happened. And we've only scratched the surface in right. the 20-something yeah. minutes that we've been talking. There are so many unbelievable things that happened along the way that Jennifer Portman reported on, column after column, article after article, uh, how waiters 
and a hunting jacket mysteriously appeared at Lake Seminole six months after Mike went missing. In the pocket of the jacket was Mike's hunting license. Just happened to appear after months of searching that very same spot. Mike having been declared dead through what's called a presumptive death certificate, which is something that's never done in the state of Florida as soon as six months after he went missing with no body whatsoever. Denise collecting on about $2 million in life insurance and on and on and on. Yeah, the details just pile up. And I'm I'm wondering, the previous case you had reported on or done research on and, and wrote a book about, you really had some personal connection to that. This was different for you because Tallahassee is a pretty far drive, I would think, from um, North Carolina. And I, I wondered, what kind of research did you find yourself doing? You talk about kind of developing a rapport and a friendship with Cheryl Williams. What did you come to Tallahassee. I think I read that in your book that you visited Tallahassee. What kind of research did you do to really get a grasp on this case and to be able to include all of these details that are so important to the story? Well, I spoke to a lot of people and that wasn't, you know, my main interviewing occurred before I came to Tallahassee. So I interviewed people like another girlfriend that Mike had when he was in school as a young kid named Denise Pate, who's now Denise Brogdon. Uh, she was terrific because she followed this case. A lot of people who knew Mike from his early days followed this case, were in court for the trial, um, and they were just passionate about wanting to tell Mike's story. And they helped me immensely in being able to let the world know the type of person that Mike Williams was. So you're not just getting his mom's view of that. You're getting the people that knew him as he was growing up. And then his boss, Clay Ketchum was terrific. His wife, Patty, was terrific. I've gotten to know them pretty well as well. So we got to know what Mike was like as he was getting into his late 20s and 30 and 31, which is what he was when he died. You know, I got to know Mike from the time he was born all the way until the day he died pretty well. And that's a key. You said earlier, you know, some true crime stories don't really do justice to the victim. I will not write a true crime story that doesn't do justice to the victim. And this book, in some ways, is the biography of and a tribute to Mike Williams. As one of his friends said, there wasn't a finer person alive. And from everything that I've heard about him, that's absolutely true. And so that makes this book even more hair on the back of your neck standing up. That yeah. his best friend in life and his wife would eliminate from the face of the earth someone who others considered there was no finer person alive on earth. How could you yeah. do that to some? I could understand doing that to an evil person, to somebody mm -hmm. who was, you know, making somebody's life miserable. Mike Williams made everybody's life better, and yet mm -hmm. his best friend and his wife conspired to kill him and did. I think that it, you're right. That's one of the most heartbreaking details about the case is just it's it just feels utterly nonsensical and it's hard to figure out a real motive or a real understanding of how this could have happened we talk about the humanity of of mike and getting to and you're right evil at lake seminole one of the things i really did like about it i devoured it um i, I thought it was so well done and well put together one of the things i appreciated about it was it did feel especially in the first half of the book like a history of who mike was and who his family was. And there are other true crime books, I feel like, that sometimes really forget the humanity of all the people involved. And because because I think it's easy also to villainize the perpetrators of these crimes. And I think you did a really good job of, of encapsulating the story as a whole. And 
giving a voice maybe to to somebody like Mike, who through no fault of his own, doesn't get to have a voice anymore. And I wanted to talk about, are you a fan of true crime literature or sounds like maybe podcasts? What about the genre draws you to it? Well, it's interesting. I mean, true crime now, you can probably slice it into seven, eight, ten different subgenres. And in fact, if you go <laughs> yeah. on a, if you go on to Amazon, you know, you have to list your book in one of those subgenres because there's so many different subgenres. I mean, there are there are people who write about serial killers. There are people who focus on these types of cases from the psychology. To me, it's about people and the books that I'm gonna be writing about, I'm a divorce lawyer. So to me, it's about a relationship gone bad. Every murder, like this at least, is a story about a relationship gone bad. And I want to understand, you know, the beginnings of that relationship, which are always good. You know, a mm-hmm. marriage, you know, the, the people in love. And how you get from that point to, I want to eliminate that person from the face of the earth. To me, that's that's the compelling thing about true crime is where there's a relationship that started as being the best you can possibly have of true love and affection and ending in one person's heart no longer beating because the other person wanted to make it stop beating. Right. Do you, speaking of other crimes and kind of what draws your attention or what captures your attention, do you have a case you're working on now or a book you're working on now? I hesitate to ask because I don't, no pressure. It sounds like, it sounds like when you do book sightings and things, people, uh, that's one of the first questions people ask. But I'm curious if you have found another case that has grabbed your attention in such a way that has made you want to write another book. What Evil at Lake Seminole taught me, well, two things. One, I'm hooked. I am going to probably do this for the rest of my life. I've, I I don't need more convincing that this is in my blood. <laughs> it's in my blood. I'm going to keep on doing it. But the huge difference between the work I did on the first book, Murder on Birchleaf Drive, and the work I did on Evil Lake Seminole, I didn't have the support and help of any friends or family in the first book. And in mm. my view, if you read that first book, the characterization falls flat. Because I, I just couldn't flesh out the characters the way I ideally would have liked to, because I didn't get the interviews with the people who could have really helped me do that. I did for Evil at Lake Seminole. And as between the two, it's a richer read for the reader, Evil at Lake Seminole, and it's a more rewarding experience for me as the writer. So I've decided as I go forward, I am only going to write books like this where I have the cooperation of friends and family like I did for Evil Lake Seminole. So, yes, I have another story in mind. Whether I get to write that is going to depend entirely on whether I get access to the friends and family uh, who will help me make that a rich and compelling story. And the other reason I've decided I don't want to write books purely from a cold record anymore is I don't want the family out there being upset that I've done it. It's so much more rewarding to me that Cheryl Williams calls me from time to time and asks me, how's the book doing? Or she's heard about a review of the book and she wants to talk with me about that. That's so much more rewarding. I will tell you for my first book, I did a book signing up in New York in the hometown where Michelle Young grew up. And her mother, who actually now lives in North Carolina, she flew up, Linda Fisher flew up for my book signing, not to be there for me, but to be there for her friends who she knew was going to come out. And she didn't want them to think that she had forgotten about her daughter, Michelle. And when the book signing was over, some 50 people from Long Island were there. She snuck out. She listened to every word I said, and then she snuck out without saying the first word to me. And again, that leaves me somewhat flat that I've written this tribute to her daughter. That's going to help her daughter's story live on forever, but she doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And she's not proud of it. 
And for that reason, I'm going to only write books going forward where the family is going to buy in, help me, and we can basically do it as a joint venture together. Uh, the story that I have in mind is one that I think would be just as good at, as Evil Lake Seminole, but it's only going to get written if I'm successful in connecting with the family. Stay tuned. I don't know whether I will be. I love that for a couple of reasons, because first of all, I help, I think it probably helps you as a writer even narrow your focus, because I imagine there are sadly countless cases. Um, Way too many. Mike, yeah. yeah, like Mike's is obviously unusual, but but there are sadly far too many of cases like these. And so as a writer, probably having kind of that grounding principle to help guide your writing and, and also, again, helping maintain the humanity. I love true crime as a genre, but I, I will not always listen to true crime podcasts if I feel like they're being too flippant or too silly because it's, it's really horrifying the things that you're reading about and listening about. And so that's one of the things I did appreciate about Evil at Lake Seminole was I felt like the tone was respectful um, and understood that this, this is sad. This is heartbreaking. Um, and it's not supposed to be just for my consumption or my entertainment. Um, and it, and it's not over these stories, just because somebody dies, life goes on for the people around them. And the most heartbreaking thing about evil Lake Seminole is Cheryl Williams, uh, is now in her mid seventies and her granddaughter, Ansley, who was again, 19 months when her father was murdered, hasn't had anything to do with her since she was five years old and probably never will again. She was raised by her father's killers. And she, for years, listened to stories about how crazy Cheryl Williams was. And Cheryl will probably never have that child in her life again. She's now about to graduate from Florida State University. All these years have passed. And it's tragic that, you know, lives way beyond what happens on the day of the murder lives get ruined by these kinds of stories. Yeah. And the and the effects continue. You're absolutely right. It's not like the story just stops. Um, there are lives impacted and the relationship between Ansley and Cheryl really does. Oh, it's just it's very sobering and and saddening. And I, I appreciated that you touched on that as well. As we wrap up, I want to close switching gears slightly. We've got um, four questions that I typically ask guests who come on the podcast. And not all of our guests are true crime authors. So these are more reading, writing questions than they are maybe true crime questions. But I hope you'll be able to answer them. They're kind of designed to be lightning round type questions. So the first one is, what is a classic book you've never read, but you wish you had? Moby Dick um, <laughs> is one. So I would have said In Cold Blood, which is you know reputed to be the first true, true crime book. But I'm actually in the process of reading it right now. I just watched the movie Capote um, with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I am so hooked, so hooked because now that I've come full circle and I'm actually a true crime writer, it's neat to see, you know, how he became a true crime writer, which the movie really portrays nicely. And then to now go back and read the book that is, you know, the, the king of this genre, the greatest true crime uh, selling book of all time. So I'm, re I'm reading in, in cold blood, but I would probably say Moby Dick is a book that I should have read by now, but haven't. I love the answer of in cold blood, because it also sounds like you're embracing the fact that you are a true crime writer. This wasn't just a one, one off book. It, now you're, you're embracing that identity. I love that. 
Okay. Second question is, this is obviously being recorded for a podcast. It sounds like you listen to podcasts. What are one or two of your favorite podcasts that you listen to? Okay. So I'm not a podcast listener and I only started listening to podcasts because A, I've been now interviewed on several and I was for Murder on Birchleaf Drive. I was interviewed for, I think, two different podcasts there. Uh, and so I knew they existed. I knew that there were dozens of true crime podcasts and I list and I found stories. I have a website for both books. And if I find something that's on the story and I found a few true crime podcasts on the Jason Young story and I posted them, but I listened to them before I posted them. Uh, and that's how I fi- found out about Court Junkie and thought it was so good. And thought I was listening to Court Junkie the day that I <laughs> learned about this story. And it was only afterwards I said, hey, that wasn't even Court Junkie, was it? <laughs> so I, I, I think there are very good true crime podcasts. Court Junkie is one. Crime Junkie is another. Um, but I'm not a regular listener to podcasts. I've just started listening a little bit to Michelle Obama's podcast. But it's not, it's not a medium that I'm uh, itching to get to. I just am not that interested in listening to what other people have to say, uh, which is funny because I'm now talking to a podcast audience <laughs> who's listening to what I have to say. The fact that you're not maybe as avid a podcast listener as I thought really lends to this idea that you having this kind of side career or side interest feels rather serendipitous then. It, it, I, it, I it's, think- it's incredible. And, and Cheryl Williams will say that God intended me to stumble onto that podcast on that day uh, so that I could tell this story. And I'm not so sure I don't believe her. (laughs) Okay. Third question. What is your favorite part about life in the South? It's a much slower, having grown up in the North for 18 years, the pace is slower. Although the more people from the North that move here, and there are lots of them like me, uh, the more that changes, but pace is slower. People are kinder for the most part it's a little bit easier way to live life than growing up, for instance, in the metropolitan New York area. Traffic is less, pollution is less, crime is less, people, again, are friendlier, and it's easier to form lasting relationships, I think. Okay, last question, and you may have already partially answered it in an earlier one, but I'm wondering what you are reading right now. I'm reading In Cold Blood right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what I, I another thing I will say to give a plug to somebody else who has recently become a true crime writer. Her name is C.J. Wynn, and she wrote a book called Wilder Intentions, which just came out a couple of months ago. Black Lion Publishing, my publisher, was not in true crime until they published Murder on Birchleaf Drive. So Murder on Birchleaf Drive was Black Lion Publishing's first true crime book. Evil at Lake Seminole was their second. Wilder Intentions by C.J. Wynn who now lives in Arizona, but grew up in North Dakota, which is where that story took place. That's the third book of Black Lion Publishing's True Crime Library. And I, the book I read before in Cold Blood was her book um, called Wilder Intentions. And it was really, really good. And we're forming a little bit of a bond, CJ and I, in that we're both entering the world of true crime at about the same time. And we're supporting each other. In fact, after I got done talking to you, uh, I owe her a phone call. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I love that spirit of kind of camaraderie and Absolutely. It sounds like maybe common mission, which I like. Yes. Well, Steve, this has been so great. I thoroughly, I always hesitate to say I enjoy a true crime book um, because 
you know, the heart of the books are so sad and heartbreaking, but I thoroughly appreciated Evil at Lake Seminole. I loved learning more about the case, especially as someone who had been fascinated with it from childhood. And I'm really grateful for your work. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, I enjoyed it very much. And I hope your listeners get more out of this podcast than I get out of the ones I listen to. <laughs> that sounds good. Thanks, Steve. Have a great day. Take care. Take care.